a time for everything. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to tear, or tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep silence, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do as good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I pray for you, Andrew, as you come up. Uh, Father God, we thank you for uh, your many good gifts to us, not least the gift of your holy words. Uh, We thank you for the gifts that you've given uh, Andrew uh, in being able to um, speak from your word and explain it to us. So we ask that you're with him now uh, as he uh, explains this passage. Um, We pray that you'd quieten our hearts and minds so we hear what you have to say to us. Amen. Thanks for reading. Um, wonderful testimony about a God who can be trusted in the practical parts of life. And it's going to resonate, you'll see on our points, we're going to be thinking about trusting the Lord of time. And I hope we'll see the connections. Um, just to kind of ground us again, we're in this uh, book. Uh, the writer's been showing us the futility, the, the heaviness. Uh, the vaporousness of the world, world that we live in. And he's wanted us to kind of press our noses in it and then to think, well, what do we do if we live in that kind of a world? And we've seen one response to it. And uh, you'll see the title of our first session, I think, was Living in a Cursed World. We're going to go on to session two, Living as Time Bound. What does it mean to live as creatures? We're not God. We are bound by time. Um, and we're going to think about that in our session. Um, I wonder if anyone has heard before the parable of the management consultant and the fisherman. Not biblical parable, but, <laughs> um, but it has done the rounds on the internet. You've heard it. it obviously goes around at KPMG a bit. Um, I'll retell it. it. It's basically to mock Lisa, and uh, it's kind of it, it's to take the mickey out of management consultants and existential workers. Um, so it's about uh, a consultant, he goes on holiday, she, I don't know, it's a he in the story, um, to a sh- sleepy fishing village. He noticed that the fishermen in the village c- 
completes his work in one hour and then spends the rest of the day uh, with his family before going each evening. He goes out, plays in a band and hangs out with his friends. And the consultant catches him going up the beach and says, look, listen, it's very important, I've got an MBA. Uh, I can tell you how you can improve your life. If you fished all day, before long you could have enough to buy a, you know, a whole fleet of fishing boats and eventually you could uh, move to the city, you could run a fish distribution business. After a couple of decades you could sell shares in your business, you could possibly even have enough to retire. And the fisherman listens and says, and after that? And uh, well, after that you could move to a fishing village where you could fish in the morning and you could spend the rest of your day with your family and your friends, you could spend your evenings playing in your band and hanging out with your friends and so on. And the fisherman just kind of shakes his head, smiles at the man and walks up the beach. And, and we kind of get it, don't we? The, the point of the story is that it's meant to be poking fun at our society's obsession with gain. That's the Ecclesiastes word. The, the, the obsession with productivity. And especially the way it is ruining our lives and making us into super busy stress heads. I don't have to spend long on this because we live in London. I, I don't have to persuade you that this is a thing. Um, and the session we're, the, um, in this session, we're going to be thinking about this question. I'll put it on your sheets. Why is it that we are so busy and stressed? You know, we've got so many labour saving devices, we've got washing machines, we've got supermarket deliveries, uh, we've got these things that mean that jobs that would have taken our forebears the best part of a week now take literally minutes. And yet somehow we've managed to be busier than ever. That's kind of, we all know the paradox. And people actually suggest, don't they, that the technology, perhaps things like mobile phones, make things even worse. We're now under even greater pressure to reply immediately. We can never leave our work behind. And if you come across this, researchers now try and quantify just how busy people are by average pedestrian speeds. This gets played out in the, in the papers once every five years. Um, apparently, we're now walking 10% faster in London even than 20 years ago. And we, were, we were nearly the, we were top of the table then, but we've, got, we've managed to kind of almost break into a run. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's presumably because we are more hurry, hurried, we're more stressed um, than we were. And it's this kind of situation, I mean, this is relevant to everybody at all times, it's in the scriptures, but I think this is particularly relevant to us as Londoners and it pushes back this passage it, it says to us that much of our frantic busyness actually comes from a misunderstanding of what is God's job and what is our job in life and uh, one of the big themes uh, we've already seen in Ecclesiastes is forcing us to see what life is really like as it really is, warts and all uh, not the escapism that we normally do, but actually looking it down the barrel and then showing us how to live wisely and joyfully in the midst of it. So let's get into the passage. And the point of the first point our writer wants us to see, again it's on the sheets, is that the seasons of life are beyond our control. Uh, and the passage begins with this poem. I think it's a relatively famous poem. Depends what generation, if you like Bob Dylan or... Anyway, to some generations this is a famous poem. Let me start from verse 1. For everything there is a season, 
and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. And on it goes. And what I love about this poem, and I think lots of people have have enjoyed it for millennia now, is that it's so beautifully ambiguous, isn't it? We read it, it's just... We're not quite sure what it's about. Is it good news? Is it bad news? Uh, Is it positive? Is it negative? And there's some clues, actually, which point us in different directions. It is kind of of on a pivot. It's deliberately ambiguous. Uh, So we're told at the beginning that there is a time for every matter under heaven. Uh, The fact that it's under heaven rather than under the sun, which is the phrase we've mainly had until now, might hint to us that it's kind of deliberately under God's good governance. You know, it's a positive idea. Um, heaven is referred to as the place where God dwells in chapter 5. So, so we might be thinking, well, this is a positive idea. And again, the poem has 14 pairs of times. You might, if you know the Bible, that seven in its multiples, they're positive numbers uh, to symbolise perfection. God made the world in seven days. And the poem reminds us as well of the magnificent rhythms of the natural world. We skipped the poem in chapter 1, 4 to 7, but it it resonates with that poem, the sun rises, the sun goes down. But here in chapter 3, it's with human activity, a time to be born, a time to die. And it feels like it's it's got a kind of positive, you know, creator's rhythm to it. So there's these kind of clues which point us, yes, it's very positive. But then when we get to the end of the poem, the comments on it, the first comment at the end of the poem... I think probably takes us in the opposite direction. Have a look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Is this starting to be familiar as Ecclesiastes readers? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Actually, this word business, the business which God gives us to be busy with, it's the same word we've come across in chapter 1, verse 13. In that verse it was... It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So the the unhappy um, business of futility is is about living in a cursed world. And from that perspective, we then read the poem quite negatively. And we go back and read the poem again. And from this perspective, did you notice there's really no gain in the poem? Let's take verse 5. A time to cast away stones. There we go, there, there, off they go. Oh, and a time to gather stones together. I mean, if you had to have an image of um, unproductivity, that would be it, wouldn't it? I mean, what have you got to show for it at the end? It's exactly what you started with. Um, so, life is not just unproductive, according to the poem, but it's also out of our control. And this is a, also a theme which is developed in the comments afterwards. These seasons of life mostly are things which happen to us without our planning. So verse 2, we don't choose when is a time to be born or when is a time to die, most of us. We don't choose, most of us, when it's a time for war or when it's a time for peace, in verse 8. Actually, even down to our emotional responses, verse 4, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Not just that we don't control when someone dies, we don't even control how long it's going to take 
to grieve them. Life is mainly out of our control. And apart from the first pair, which arguably, arguably do work well as an opener, there's no real discernible structure, I think, for the other pairs. Just like with life, things just get thrown at us, seemingly randomly. So we've got this poem, it's in the Bible, can't ignore it. What, what, what are we to do with it? Uh, is it positive? Is it negative? Um, I think that's precisely the point here. Uh, it's got a deliberate ambiguity. And that's because the poem describes life as it really is. This is what living in this world is really like. And really the question of whether we receive this life as good or bad, in part depends on us and on our outlook. So yes, the seasons of life are beyond our control. You know, lots of stuff just happens to us. And therefore, if we are control freaks, or if we are obsessed with the question of where is gain, where is gain, verse 9, then this poem, like the seasons of life, will be oppressive to us. Now, how was your week? Well, oh, it was awful. All these things got in the way of my plans. You know, there's so many things got hampered my productivity this week. And yet, if as, if, as the writer wants to show us, if we are creatures, uh, if there is a Lord of time, if there's a God who is good and generous and can be trusted, then the discovery that life is out of our control might actually be good news. And that brings us neatly to point two. So yes, the seasons of life are beyond our control, but wonderfully, point two, we can trust the Lord of time. So that question in verse nine, what gain has the worker from his toil? That's, we've seen that the question Solomon's been interested in right from the beginning of the book. It's almost uh, identical, isn't it, to the one in chapter one, verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then verse 10 reminds us of what Solomon's already revealed, that since our first parents rebelled against God, God has deliberately frustrated this world. We saw that verse 10. I've seen the business. That's the frustrating, fruitless business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So that's kind of recap section. And next, there is some new teaching about how, despite our inability to understand and control the seasons of life, we discover next that there is one who can and does. There is a Lord over time. Have a look at verse 11. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. And that phrase, beautiful in its time, it has the sense of beautifully fitting. It's like a well-crafted story. So we may not understand why one season of life follows after another, why... 2018 has gone in a different direction from what we had planned for it. Why, you know, so many things have scuppered our goals and plans. We don't know. And yet we're discovering there is one who knows and he's planned it. He's crafted it perfectly. And if we had his perspective, we could see that every scene of life is in its perfect place. Verse 11. Also, 
He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. This verse explains why human beings feel the tension that we do in life. We know that there is some big picture. I think all human beings sense there is, it matters. You know, there's an enduring significance to this world and to what happens in it. God has put that eternity in our hearts. Incidentally, that's why when um, people speak, don't they, about how things like love and justice really matter, they know that's not just an opinion. They know those things are, are realities. They're absolutes. Even though often people's worldviews can't support what they know deep down. But, the verse says, whilst we know enough to know that there is an eternity, that we and our actions have lasting significance... The point here is that we don't see enough. We don't see enough to understand what the big story is and how each of the scenes that we're in, day by day, contributes to the whole. At one time when I was on holiday with my family as a teenager, uh, we visited Salvador Dali's house in, I think you say, Figueras in Spain. Um, And if you've been there, it is packed full of uh, Dali art and um, there's, when you first come in you walk along a balcony and you see an 18 metre painting oh no, I'm a bit behind on the slides I think that's about the lord of time but this is the painting and the painting is called Gala, that's Dali's wife looking at the sea it's a slightly odd painting isn't it, it's a bit blocky a bit puzzling and you look at it and you think well he could certainly paint although I'm not sure what it was he was painting and then you keep walking past it and then later you find yourself round back in the main hall and you can see the same picture but this time you can see it from a distance away there in the middle and you can't help noticing something strange about it does anyone know what's strange about the picture what does it look like now Someone's face, yeah. And it's actually an American president. Exactly, thank you. So you, you'll have to kind of Google the image online and then squint and do that to get it. But basically, the woman's blocky head, when you're a long way away, becomes Abraham Lincoln's right eye. The blurry orangey sunset, when the woman was looking at the sunset, becomes Abraham Lincoln's forehead. Shall I go back? Because I can see this is going to trouble people. Just try and squint. Anyway. You'll have to do it yourself online. But take my word for it. It's the same painting. And um, at last, when you have some perspective, some distance from it, you realise what Dali was doing and the whole thing makes sense. But there's no way you could have known what it was actually about when you were up close to it. Only the artist knew what each of the little details was really there for. Solomon is saying that that is like our experience of life. It's as if our noses are pressed up against a beautiful painting, you know, like a fresco, something like that. And all human beings can do is kind of edge along the painting. And we know it must be amazing. We we can see enough to know it must have some grand and glorious design, but we're pressed up too close. We can't get far enough from it to see really what is going on. And that is what it is like living in this world. Not being able to see the full picture of what's happening. 
So what are we to do? Well, the right response to our smallness and to our limited perspective is that we are to rejoice and do good. Let's pick it up from verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and, this is a new element, to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. We've had a bit of that before in chapter 2. This is God's gift to man. And we've seen, haven't we, that the call to rejoice, the call to take pleasure in our Creator's generosity. We've seen it already in Ecclesiastes. We're going to see it if you keep going. It's the repeated theme that's going to come again, chapter 5, chapter 8, and so on. And once again, we're being challenged to consider this point in the first session. Life is about gifts more than gain. You know, do you remember, it's not the computer game. Life is not really about getting the maximum points before the time runs out. Life is an arena in which we receive gifts from a creator so we can know him better. So in addition to rejoicing in God's gifts, we're also called in verse 12 to do good. And the point here is that although we don't know how God is going to use each of our actions, each of our lives, if we are committing ourselves to him, we can trust that he will. He is somehow weaving all of our experiences, all of our lives into one glorious story. And our role, therefore, is just to do good with the opportunities we're given today. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, um, The World's Last Night, uh, captures the idea like this. We do not know the play... I'm behind on the slides. We do not know the play that we're living in. We do not even know whether we're in Act 1 or Act 5. We do not know who are the major and who are the minor characters. The author knows. The audience, if angels and archangels and all the company of heaven fill the pit and the stalls, the audience may have an inkling. But we never see the play from the outside. We never meet any characters except the tiny minority who are on in the same scenes as ourselves. We are wholly ignorant of the future and very imperfectly informed about the past. That the play has a meaning, we can be sure, but we cannot see it. When it is over, the author will have something to say to each of us on the part that each of us has played. The playing it well is what matters infinitely. And Lewis is capturing there brilliantly what it means to acknowledge that God is Lord over time and we are not. What it means, Solomon says, is that we are to humbly rejoice and do good good, and then leave the outcome to him. And not only are we to rejoice and do good, but also we are to let any frustration lead us to worship. Uh, In verse 14, we discover more about God as the master playwright. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. There's this picture of God as the artist who's creating this grand and glorious fresco. He's the playwright. He not only sees the beginning from the end, but he's, he's behind it. He's weaving every strand of the plot into one glorious story. Verse 14, nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. As mere actors on the stage, we play our part, 
certainly. But we don't ultimately control the grand plot. That's the playwright's job. And so this tension that we feel, knowing that there is a big plot, but not knowing how exactly we contribute, and knowing that we're not ultimately in control of the plot. All of this tension, all of this frustration that we now discover is deliberate. God wants us to feel this way. But why? Why does God want this frustration? Why has God done this? Let's read verse 14 again. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him. And that phrase, fear before, means uh, to fear in God's presence. It means to reverently approach in worship. I think this is a bit of a mind shift for some of us. One of the um, frustrations God placed over this world when our ancestors first rebelled is the frustration of not being in control of all our seasons of life. And the frustration of discovering that so many of them are ultimately unproductive. And yet God's purpose is that we receive and, and experience this frustration and then turn it back into worship. So every time life doesn't go as it's planned, uh, from the micro, you know, there's the, the traffic jam, uh, there's the paper jam in the computer, there's the mouldy strawberry jam when you want a sandwich. Um, so there's the micro problems, there's the macro problems. I don't know exactly in this room, maybe there's a bereavement, uh, there's disability. Um, in fact, every time we sense this life is out of control, every time we sense that this life is unproductive, we're discovering here that is an opportunity for us to say, well, God is in control, not me. He is the Lord of time. He is the great playwright. And actually, these frustrations in our world are to remind me of that. And my job, therefore, is just to bow down and worship him. So when we take these uh, truths together, the twin truths, we're to rejoice and do good, and we're to let frustration lead to worship. I think this is a kind of motto, this is a, a, a formula for how to live. It's very practical, it's very positive. So all of us are either having a great time or a bad time. If we're, if we're receiving blessing right now, if the sun we're shiny. Well, if you're on a weekend away, let's put it like that, and you're with your church family and you're having a great time, what should we do? Well, we should rejoice and do good. Remember, it is from his hand. If we're feeling frustration right now, you know, we're in the middle of a storm, personally. Well, what should we do? The passage says, lean into it. It, it is deliberate. It, it might be painful, but know that God is the Lord of time. He has permitted this pain into the script. And we should, do, we should let the frustration do its work of leading us to acknowledge our smallness and God's greatness so that we can then turn that into worship. So do you see how practical this teaching is? It, it affects every day of our lives. So as we close... Just to summarise, the call of this chapter, it's a wonderful call, 
is for us to embrace the freedom that comes from accepting that we are limited, finite creatures. And there's a famous poem, Victorian poem, called Invictus. And the poem famously goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Looking for twinkles of recognition. There's actually um, uh, a film about the South African rugby team which takes the title of that poem, Invictus. And in the film, Mandela presents the poem to the team captain, Francois Pinar, to inspire him. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that poem, I think, has become something of an anthem for our times. Uh, It's the suggestion that the message of the poem is that freedom comes from a proud defiance of our creatureliness. I am the master. I am the captain. But actually, any experience tells us that pretending that I am the Lord over time, when actually, I don't want to upset you, but that job has already been taken um, to someone else who's sitting on that throne. If we presume to have that role when we don't exercise it, that is not freedom, that is slavery. Actually, that's part of the reason, isn't it, why modern people are so stressed. We're constantly told to be masters of our fate when that is just not within our power. We don't control time. M. Scott Peck, um, in his bestseller, The Road Less Travelled, he put it this way, and it's an opposite philosophy. As soon as we believe that it is possible for a man to become God, we can never rest for long. We can never say, okay, my job is done. We must constantly push ourselves to greater and greater wisdom, greater and greater effectiveness. By this belief, we will have trapped ourselves, at least until death, on an effortful treadmill of self-improvement. See what he's saying? Much of our stress, much of our relentless busyness comes, this chapter is saying, from our failure to distinguish between what should be on God's to-do list and what should be on yours and mine. This is an important life lesson for all of us. God's to-do list includes things like planning everything that happens across all of our lives. Uh, It includes deciding when is the time to weep, when is the time to laugh, all the stuff in that poem. God's to-do list um, involves weaving all the scenes of this life into one coherent and glorious whole. And he's brilliant at it. He's going to do it perfectly. And it's his job, ultimately, to fix every injustice, to put everything right, and so on. And he will do But what a relief that is for us. Because it means that my to-do list can therefore be much more manageable. So I still have things to do. I'm still called to joyfully acknowledge my creator. Still called to be thankful for his gifts. I'm still called to turn my frustrations into worship as I remember that he's God and I'm not. I'm still called to do good where I can then I should be putting right injustice and serving God with the gifts I've been given. But crucially, I'm free from having to take God's list onto my shoulders as well. 
which is very practical because it means that I'm then freed at the end of the day uh, just to put my tools down and to leave them down. Not doing just one last email as you go to sleep. One last job. Because I know that the Lord of time will keep this world spinning without my help. And so I can rest in him. I guess that's one of the reasons God has invented sleep, isn't it? Um, It's a daily reminder to us of our creatureliness. We are not God. It's God who keeps the world turning, not us. It's a reminder that each day we have to put our tools down. We have to leave it to him. And that is a great relief. We should learn the lesson. And incidentally, and I was aware when I started with the parable, which mocks the management consultants, um, this call to do good and to serve God with the gifts I've been given. I think actually this is where the parable sends us off in a wrong direction. I think the parable's got something to say, but has basically got a wrong answer. The parable suggests that the good life is the leisurely life. That's, that's the point of the parable. If you can, minimise work time, maximise leisure time. Actually, that's not what Solomon would have us do. If we keep reading on in this book, chapter 9, verse 10, we're told, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So this chapter is not a call to laziness, actually. It's a call to trust. And as we trust God, we will discover a freedom to embrace the seasons that God has given us. A freedom to roll with the rhythms of the poem of life. There's lots in our life that is out of control. Um, Every day, things, obstacles, there's frustrations. And yet, if we trust the Lord over time, we'll learn to lean into them and roll with them. If I wake early and I can't get back to sleep, well, maybe that's the Lord opening up an unexpected opportunity to read the Bible or pray. Um, If I'm with... You know, one of the girls and the public transport is not behaving. Well, that's quite annoying. But maybe it's the Lord's way of uh, making sure I have some proper parent-child time that day that I hadn't planned. Uh, Or if chickenpox has scuppered the family holiday to France that we've been looking forward to, as has happened in our household. That is an opportunity to reflect as a family on what it is to live in a cursed world and why it is we're so looking forward to the world made new that's coming. So if we're in an unwelcome season, if we're in an unplanned, if we're in an unproductive season, perhaps ill health, perhaps bereavements, perhaps some struggle no one here knows about, what a difference it makes to us to know there is a Lord of time. There is one we can trust fully, even when the seasons of our life are not as we would have planned them. There is a great fresco artist. There is one who has an enduring, overarching plan for his world. He's told us he makes everything beautiful in its time. This means that you and I can trust him completely whatever happens. I'm going to pause there.